Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick, your host, my co-host, Jennifer Kalari, coming up in just a minute. And we are a show that unites mental health and comedy. We talk about mental health issues, about mental well-being, about mental fitness. We introduce skills and we try to practice them because mental health is something that you do and it's something that you can do at any moment, any day. And when it comes to mental health, no one's ahead and no one's behind. We're all children. So welcome. It's like romper room with emotions. We're going to put the funk in dysfunction. I want to tell you that uh, on today's show, this is great. This is really great because I've known about this guy for so many years, but we've never really had a conversation until about a week ago. And it was fantastic then. And every time you talk to him, it's, it's great and interesting and new. He's a comedian. He's a social activist. He's the host of a new podcast, The Jimmy Tingle Show, direct from the mean streets of Cambridge, Mass. <laughs> Jimmy Tingle, everybody. He's here and he's going to talk about his new organization, Humor for Humanity and much more, and that's coming up shortly. Everything's coming up. Nothing's happening now, but it's all coming up. Today's topics, I want to talk a little bit about perfectionism. I want to talk about perfectionism. It has messed me up for a long time, and I want to relate to it differently in my life now that I'm in my golden years. We'll talk a little bit about growth mindset, also about organization. I could be the leader of a disorganized crime family. I'm the least organized person, and uh, I've spent a lot of time looking for things that are right in front of me. So we'll talk about organization and maybe a little bit about time management, too. My skills are second to everyone. Today's show is brought to you by a whole new program. It's a comedy that's on the Mental Health Comedy Network, and it is called Therapy Squad Emotional Crimes Unit. Now, in a bold move, the LAPD has created a new unit that's going to undergo mental health training, therapy, mindfulness, resilience skills, and sensitivity training. Unfortunately, even with financial incentives, few officers have applied, so the department has picked the best candidates with the worst records. So there are a million fears and insecurity in the naked city. The people at Therapy Squad have 98% of them. Therapy Squad is a comedy uniting cop shows and therapy. We'll get to know these cops who deal with emotional crimes. Clueless about their own internal affairs, they take work and their personal problems very seriously, but not in that order. The show is nonstop action. Whether it's detectives on a case, cutting-edge police therapy training, or an inability to make decision about lunch, it all happens here. It's the story of people who need help desperately, not helping people who need help desperately. Arresting comedy to project and deserve Therapy Squad. That's an actual show that I've done and filmed. We're actually going to maybe have some clips from it, uh, the audio clips, because it's, it's really funny. I'd like to, as we always do, welcome people, no matter what emotional state you're in. Here are emotional shout outs. If the show Hoarders rejected you because they labeled you too much, welcome. If you feel that CNN should start giving rewards for sitting through the news, welcome. If you're blaming your fear of intimacy on Wordle, welcome. 
If you've ever told your therapist, we have to stop now, welcome. If you go to the ATM and get an insufficient talent receipt, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And now, without any further ado, the first lady of the frontal lobe, the wizard of wellness, the ninja of neurons, Jennifer Kalari, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. Those are new. Well, we're trying. We're upgrading a little bit. <laughs> Not a lot, but a little bit. First of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about these three areas, I don't, and they may be related. Perfectionism, organization, and time management. Mm-hmm. I think for me, they are connected. They are, actually. They're, they are connected. I am a person who I want everything to be good. I really always assume that it has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Taking little steps is not my style. It's not what I'm used to. Yeah. Where do people learn perfectionism and how do you, how do you break it down in a way that, you know, where, where you don't have those feelings of insecurity and like yeah. you're falling out of an yeah. airplane? You know, it's complicated because I think there's two different reasons. Sometimes it can be modeled and expected in your childhood of origin, in, in your family of origin, I mean where, you know, mistakes aren't tolerated and you kind of feel shamed or there's a kind of harsh consequences if you don't try. But I think also it's temperament. And it's very common with really bright people, people who kind of get things quickly. And I mean, I work with a lot of young people who are gifted and it's not such a gift, let me tell you. Um, And I think what happens is sometimes there's a very strange relationship with effort So if you're really bright and you have to try hard at something, so like typical learners, for example, try things over and over again and they try it different ways and they stick with it. And and that's a really good skill. And that that helps you a lot in life and academically in sports and all kinds of things. But for a lot of really bright people and a lot of comedians are actually very, very bright and we'll come back to that. But what ends up happening is they think that effort is a threat to their intelligence. If I have to try hard, then maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am. And if I'm not as smart as I think I am, then what am I? So that can definitely happen. The other is is really kind of bright overthinkers tend to fractalize, like the brain just breaks things down into smaller and smaller pieces. And you kind of overthink, I call it analysis paralysis. And then eventually you're just too afraid to try, so you don't. So you just like fail, so you can control it. The other thing too, Ed, that happens with really bright people is they kind of feel like, well, if I kind of do like a half-assed job, then I can at least still say how smart I am because I did well, even though I didn't try hard. But if I try my absolute best and then I fail, I can't tolerate that. So I'm just going to fail. I'm just going to upfront sabotage myself. So it's very complicated and there's lots of different reasons why people are perfectionists, but those are probably the most common. How is it connected with organization and time management? Issues with time, it's funny because a lot of artists tend to be more, and there's sort of discussion about whether this even kind of exists anymore, the right brain, left brain thing, but a lot of artists tend to be very, in the traditional way that we think about it, right brain. So more creative and don't box me in. And if I have a a script, then I can't think anymore. I I don't know how to do it. And time, they often have time blindness, So, which is a real thing. That is really a thing, that you have an internal clock that is just way off. That's also very, very common if you have attention issues, ADHD, 
time blindness goes along with that, but you are also usually pretty bright and on top of other things. So it's kind of amazing to you that you're not right about time, even though consistently over and over again, you're late. I have time blindness to a certain degree. So I just know that if I'm leaving to go to a talk or an appointment, if I leave at a time when it's like stupid early and I'm mad at myself and I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to get there so early. This is dumb that I'll get there on time. If I leave when I think I'm going to be on time, I'm going to be late. So I've just learned to adjust my own internal clock because it's off. It's just, it's not reliable. Yeah, that's great that, you, that you've learned that and that you've allowed for that and you prepare for that. I think that's, that's part of a, how you deal with, with that. My mother was always an hour early and she was dressed and ready in the living room at 4 a.m. <laughs> and it didn't matter. When the show is at 8, she's there at 4 a.m. And she just was that way. Yeah. But but what was under it, God knows what was under it, because she was, you know, she didn't like it if you if you got late. But she's she's a pretty tolerant person. But that time thing was always like I always felt like I was running late. And I used to be late, like in college and other Mm -hmm. I would I would be late by like hours, you know, and this always happened. And people said it's just anger. They said that's people who are angry uh, do that. Uh, maybe, I mean, maybe you're like sabotaging the person that you're supposed to meet with. But I just think it's so common with organizational issues. And, and if you have any kind of issues with executive functioning, it's usually just that you think that time just passes very differently in your brain. You could have appointment at nine o'clock and know that you have to travel there, but you're still not late until nine o'clock has come and gone. Right. And, and it's very frustrating if you have a child like this or a spouse like this. It's incredibly frustrating. But it's just something people have to be aware. Of. Just like people are colorblind, you can be time blind and you have to learn to use an external source. So Siri and your Apple Watch, if you're lucky enough to have one or some kind of external device that measures time, needs to be your prosthetic time system because your own brain can't do it. And just very quickly, like something that we can do to sort of break down the perfectionism, because for me, it's like a shortness of breath in my solar plexus. It's like any new thing, I have this like, huh, oh. feeling. So that's interesting because th- this is how it all goes together, right? And it goes together with per- perfectionism too. It's sort of like any kind of state change is alarming to the brain. And if you're a very sensitive person, if you're what's, what's known as an HSP or highly sensitive person, actually, and it's a natural thing in the brain anyway, the brain doesn't like state changes because you're safe and you're alive. And if I move and I go somewhere else and I do something new, well, that could be dangerous. And that's a prehistoric, ancient program that runs in our brains. Some people are the exact opposite and thrive on things that are new and get incredibly bored if they're not doing, doing new things. But people who tend to be perfectionists and people who sort of overanalyze tend to not like state changes, which also leads to procrastination. Oh, yes. That's why my name is Krasnick, because it's procrastinating. <laughs> I put off being myself. Yeah. Right. Well, and procrastination mm-hmm. is a form of anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's a state change. Yeah, I, t- I touch them all. I've heard growth mindset. I've heard using the word yet. Mm-hmm. I've heard all breaking things down to very simple, mm-hmm. the smallest step you can actually make. Just open the computer. Yeah. Yep. Don't write the book. Just open the computer. Well, and this is all, you know, we talk about this a lot. Making these little changes is is literally part of rewiring your brain. Like I, I run a program with young people, and I call it No to Go, where I literally have them through the practice of making little tiny micro decisions, learn how to rewire their procrastinating brain because and procrastination is a form of anxiety. 
And if you kind of sneak around the anxiety, so just really quickly, it's kind of a complicated program. But if you're a big procrastinator, then I have people make three times a day for three days, the tiniest ridiculous decision, like to you know put the toothpaste cap on or put their hoodie that fell on the floor and just count one, two, three and put it back. And then after three days, then you do four of those things for four days and then five of those things for five days. And then over time, it takes about a month you can start to rewire your brain and people describe feeling freer and happier and less resistance. And like a lot of procrastinators talk about almost feeling like going through life with somebody holding them onto them, like holding onto their shirt. So they're walking with, you know, a drag on them and you can rewire your brain. You can. That's really interesting. And, and the conscious choices, the key is conscious choices, practicing and, yeah. making conscious Witness choices. Witness yourself, observe yourself and yeah. stay aware. Yeah. Stay aware. Mm -hmm. All right, that's our bumper sticker. Stay aware. And right now, I'm aware that our guest, I'm so glad that he's here. I don't know anybody who has these combination of things that they've done in their life. And this is only like 180th of what he's done. He's a comic. He's a host. He's a writer for years. He's a social activist. He was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was a commentator on 60 Minutes 2. He has a master's from Harvard, from the Kennedy School. He delivered a commencement address at Harvard. He grew up in Cambridge, still lives in Cambridge as an adult for many years, and he ran for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. Jimmy Tingle. Jimmy, I can't believe you're here, and welcome. Ed, thank you so much for having me. Jennifer, thank you so much for having me. And that was a wonderful introduction, Ed. And you are correct. I did run for lieutenant governor of the state of Massachusetts. It was a wonderful experience. First time running, Ed. First time running, Jennifer. We got <laughs> 213,313 wow. votes. First time running, came in second place. That's, That's the incredible. good news. The bad news, two-person race. <laughs> I got the silver medal is what I'm trying to say. I am highly successful. <laughs> yeah. Listen, you had to, you had to have experienced such tremendous, like growing up and running for lieutenant governor in your home, in your own state where you grew up, your family is there. Was this an extension of all of your, your social awareness and social activism? And where did that, where did that start? Because, you know, comics are socially aware. You've been an activist for many years. I mean, you're actually out there doing things all the time. Well, just like you, Ed, with the mental health comedy podcast, you and Jennifer, you're trying to do what you can do where you are. And that's basically what I was doing. I, I mean, I had been a comic. I focused on politics for many years in comedy, political humor. And in order to get good at political humor, I mean, really good in the John Stewart League and the Bill Maher League and the Colbert League, you got to like the subject and you got to pay attention, not just superficially make jokes really to understand it and to go for a point of view you got to be into the into the politics of it the point of view and the and the purpose and i had just been doing it so long and and when donald trump won i couldn't believe it i said you know if he can use his communication skills as an entertainer for his message i could try to use my communication mm -hmm. skills as an entertainer for our message. And people say, well, how did Donald Trump win? I'm going to tell you how he won. And this might be the first time you've ever heard this. Short, simple messages. Three words. Three yeah. words. Build the wall. Drain the swamp. Lock her up. Make yeah. America great. Three words. Simple little phrases. Yeah. We have our own three words. Feed the hungry. 
Not only the people who are hungry for food, the people who are hungry for opportunity. House the homeless. Not only the people who are walking the streets on a nightly basis in every city and town in this country, sadly many of our veterans, but also the people who work every day, all day, and are simply trying to afford a safe, affordable place to live and raise a family. House Mm -hmm. those homeless. And heal the sick. Not only physical illness, but you'll love this, Ed and Jennifer, mental illness. Yes. And welcome the stranger. Welcome the stranger. So America and Massachusetts are continuing to welcome people into this great country rather than pushing people out. This is the message of America. This is the human message. Mm -hmm. Feed the hungry, house the homeless, heal the sick, welcome the stranger. And I would add, fix the trains. (laughs) Fix the trains, (laughs) brother Ed. Yeah, please fix the fix the red line. <laughs> fix the red line. If John F. Kennedy, if John F. Kennedy could inspire a generation to go to the moon, we ought to be able to get a train to go to Springfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to go to Springfield if you try. All of those things that you mention, I mean, these are things that that I grew up, you know, that we grew up hearing about. But these things have kind of lost their their bullhorn. They, they don't have that kind of uh, effect anymore. And if people start talking like that, it almost sounds, there's no spin to it. So people don't know like, how, to, how to respond. But like you said, the simple messages, that's what America was supposed to be. And that's what America could be. And that's the Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, it's the spiritual principles of all the world's major religions. Mm-hmm. Really, when you think about it, they all have some variation on those themes. And I think that we've seeded so much of the the rhetoric when it comes to anything spiritual in a social way. We've seeded it to the to the, the conservatives. You know, they're the only ones that are ever talking about this, and it's to our detriment. I feel, and I say our, I just mean the general population. What's so interesting too is helping and altruism and community and looking after people is the healthiest thing you can do for yourself too. Yes. Oxytocin, which is a powerful hormone neurotransmitter that actually blocks cortisol and mitigates cortisol, the stress hormone in your body. And serotonin and all of those feel-good, what are called here and now chemicals, actually upgrade your immune system. You, you help yourself when you help others. It's so true, Jennifer. When you do service, any kind of yeah. service, you feel good after it. You know, I mean, parenting is the ultimate service. Mm-hmm. And based on love. Yes. Well, that's what humor for, isn't that humor for humanity that you're trying to help social causes with your comedy? Isn't that, isn't that where this kind of, where, where those things kind of connect for you? They do. What I did is I went back to school in 2010 and I got a master's degree and I was at school with all these brilliant people and they were just all trying to do well in the world in whatever field they were in. There was the nonprofit world, there was the corporate world, there were elected officials, there were state workers, you know, people in all different walks of life, uh, military, secret service, and they're all trying to just improve the society. Coming from an entertainment background, I'm saying, you know, these people are awesome. This is at the Kennedy School of Government. These people are awesome. They're hardly ever on the radio, hardly ever on television. They're not in the media. And I wanted to create a media vehicle that can just raise the profile of people like that around the world that are doing great work, who are, you know, in the trenches trying to improve society and giving them a voice. And that's really where it came from. And also doing what I love to do, which is perform. And so it's a, I can still 
obviously entertain and, you know, be comical and do all that, but also for a purpose. And so that's kind of what I'm working on now. It's fantastic. Fantastic. You have a new podcast. You have a new show. We talked about interesting conversation. You've had some amazing conversations and met some incredible people. And I know you're just starting up, but the quality of what's on there is, is really interesting. Thank you. My first guest was Colin Quinn. You know Colin, right? Sure, of course. Colin was a friend back in the 80s when we both started doing comedy together in New York and Boston. And Colin was really helpful about getting off of alcohol for me. And I wanted him as the first guest, and I, I wanted to thank him publicly again. But he said, Jimmy, you know, if you, you quit drinking, you could do well in the business. And he just gave me a lot of encouragement, and it was just really important. And going back to Jennifer's point about service, about trying to help other people, either one-on-one or collectively, you know, whatever the case calls for. And so we had Colin on, and he was so funny. That was just great to have a former weekend update person from Saturday Night Live on the show. And he was great. And we reconnected. And he's just so funny. It made me laugh. I would say things to him, like, really serious, like, Colin, do you think like comedy could, you know, you know, maybe help change the public debate in the country and help bring about, you know, healing and peace and love? And he goes, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I do not think so. Thank you, but I do not think so. Yes, and then just last week we had did one with Archbishop Desmond Tutu's. Wow. A member of his communication team reached out to me uh, about 10 years ago and asked me to participate to MC and perform at an AIDS benefit in Boston. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Nobel Peace Prize winner was going to be the keynote speaker. So my job was to move the show along, host, MC, perform, and introduce Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and we did. And we had a blast doing it, and we had some funny stories that came out of that experience. So this gentleman, with the passing of Archbishop Desmond Tutu about a month ago, uh, Stuart Ting Chong from South Africa was my guest. And we just reflected on what it was like working with a Nobel Peace Prize winner in the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Now, obviously, it's not a barrel of laughs doing an interview like that, but it's raising that whole struggle and that whole participation and the archbishop's participation in that was a world-changing event. To talk to people like that, to me, is it inspires me to just keep going and try to do the best we can wherever we are. And where does a kid from Cambridge... What's that journey? How does that happen that you come to have such an interest in in social justice and in social activism along with the comedy? Did you learn that from somebody in your family? I think so. I think I did. I had uh, really great parents. They weren't activists in the tra- in the you know the t- traditional sense. They were just regular people that were just really helpful, loving, very family oriented. My father was from North Carolina. And, and they were very different. My father was a, from a farm in North Carolina, a uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And my mother was from East Cambridge, Massachusetts, full-blooded Italian Roman Catholic. And when they got married in the 50s, you know, it was almost like an interracial marriage. It was a very unusual thing to do, you know, for Italian and East Cambridge, Massachusetts Catholic to marry a Southerner from off the farm in North Carolina. But they had a, a great marriage and a great life. And raised us well. And I, I think it goes back to a lot of the values we just grow up with. In my experience, Catholicism, 
growing up Catholic, learning about the rights and wrongs. Not that I paid attention my whole life, not at all, but it was it was planted at an early age, that loving your neighbor as yourself. And I know you know this from the Jewish faith, the Judeo-Christian tradition, that Jewish folks always have a, usually have a sense of justice, and they're driven by that, and they're always trying to make a, a difference in the world. And that's the same thing with the Christians, uh, uh, the Catholics anyway. But what really happened was I went to Martin Luther King's house back in uh, in the 90s, early 90s, touring in comedy. And I was in Atlanta and I said, I want to go to Martin Luther King's house and just, you know, I heard all, I didn't know a lot about him and I heard a lot about him, but I went to his house and I, I got this book called The Strength to Love. And it was an amazing book because it was a, a collection of his sermons to the Ebenezer Baptist Church congregation in the late 50s and early 60s. And what he was doing, and I had never seen this that I can remember in Catholicism, what he was doing, he was taking the gospel and the parables and applying them to racism and desegregation and inequality and income inequality and war and justice and all of the prejudice. It just clicked for me that that's the way to apply Mm -hmm. those lessons that I learned early when I'm 10, 12 years old to my life as a 35-year-old and with all the things that were going on in society. And that sense of purpose, that sense of purpose, I mean, when they did the the film Happy, when they studied the science of happiness, science of well-being, they found a, a number of things that actually make cultures, make people happy. And the first one is being part of a community, and the second one is having a purpose. Yep. And the rest of them are kind of, they follow after that. So, Jennifer, how do you connect spirituality mm-hmm. with, because, Jimmy, what you're talking about is social activity, social activism, and spirituality working together. And, and like you said, often the conversation about, you know, whether it's Catholicism or family values comes to the conservatives. They are the ones who have taken that mantle, ultra-conservatives. I guess I'm, I'm asking you, Jennifer, how can we use those kind of things that Jimmy's talking mm-hmm. about and, and connect them with, with mental health, helping people sure. to feel like they can have a purpose? Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting because, and Jimmy talked about this with his family, right? connected parenting, the philosophy that we have is if you can't get it together in your own family, <laughs> how are you going to get it together as a country, as a nation, as a planet? So the idea is that each home becomes this place where people do their best to act from love, not fear, and using compassion. And then that kind of spreads from there. It's like a little light in every home. Activism is amazing, and it's wonderful, and I'm glad that people do it. But you can do it in the smallest ways, holding Mm -hmm. a door open for somebody. You know, if you see somebody doesn't have enough money, pay for the person behind you in the drive-thru. Like, there's just little tiny ways that you can do these glorious acts of service it doesn't always have to be these huge, massive things. And if everybody did that, wouldn't that change the world? It's so true, Jennifer. And it, people think it's massive and grandiose that you have to do it, and it's not. No. The service that you get from helping people. When I quit drinking, I got into the recovery movement, and there's people helping people all the time. Yeah, That's what they beautiful. do. That's like part of their purpose. 
you know, their purpose is to help other people, you know, overcome their addiction, whatever that is. It could be food, sex, gambling, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. The byproduct of that service is grace. Yes. Wow. Yeah. You're talking about coming from the community, doing community service. Is the political structure, you know, because you've run for lieutenant governor. Don't all of these things happen from person to person or like Jennifer's talking about in each house? and not in Washington, and not in a governing body? I think that the people who are serving as public officials, elected officials, and the people who are out there in the trenches, and this goes for the whole medical community right now, and all these people who are dealing with COVID and all this, these people are heroes. These people are like, it's not easy to be a member of Congress. It's not easy to be a senator. It's not easy to be a a city council person or a school committee person. It's never really easy. People oftentimes have a negative view of them. But in my experience, the the efforts that I see people making that you never see on television, you never see on the radio or hear on the radio, you know, because it's all under the surface. So most Mm -hmm. of it is they're on call 24-7, most of them. They're always getting called to do things. They're at events every day of the week, every night weekends, summers. I mean, it's a hard job, but they love it because they're helping. They're participating and they're doing something that's helping their constituents and their neighbors and their cities or towns or states. And so they really, they get that sense of service and that sense of commitment and that sense of grace from what they're doing. Somebody has to do it. <laughs> somebody has it's to do it. It's not for everybody, but somebody has to do it. And it's a certain type of person that can, can do sure. that type of work. Yeah. And you you wanted to do this as lieutenant governor. You you didn't this wasn't a this wasn't a publicity stunt. You actually no. wanted to hold the office. Yes. I wanted to try to do it. Yes. And um I didn't win. And that's fine. It's one of these things that, you know, you go through your life saying, you know, I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna Say my prayers and do it. <laughs> and and that's, that's what awesome. I did. And it was a great experience. It didn't win, but I talked a lot about, you know, what, what we can do better in our state when it comes to uh, substance abuse and alcoholism in the state and, and in the country as well. I called a place 1987, a week before Christmas, I called a place looking for help, trying to get in. I don't know if you've ever tried to get into a detox or a rehab or something, but it's not easy. There are a lot of places they don't have enough beds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I'm calling yeah. all these places. I'm getting the runaround. There's no beds. There's long lines. Call back next week. You don't have insurance. I called the Cambridge City Hospital, and they had a federally funded program called Cahill 3. And I said to the man who answered the phone, this is 1987, a week before Christmas. I said, I really need help. And without missing a beat, this man said, you called the right place. Oh. Ed, Jennifer, you never hear that. You called yeah. the right place. I went yeah. into that hospital. I stayed seven days through Christmas 1987. I got out, moved to New York City. I focused on stand-up comedy mm-hmm. and just getting sober. A year later, Amazing. to the week, I got the greatest Christmas gift any, any young comic could ever get. I got a spot on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Wow. Now, I don't want to date myself. The other guest that night was Bob Hope. 
So what I'm trying to say <laughs> is Bob Hope and I are very close. <laughs> There's no, I often think of you as Bob Hope. You're, you guys are, I want to tell you. I just you. need some troops to entertain. <laughs> oh my God. You That's love amazing. the troops. Wow. That is a great story. That is an incredible story. That's amazing. Cause there may be people listening right now who are in the state that you were in, in 1987, who thinks, okay. Well, he did it. I can do it. And and addiction is really just about pain. It's not about the addiction. It's about why the pain. What pain is someone in? And to have that person say you called the right place, that just moment of humanity and compassion. It was amazing. Yeah. It, because you never hear it. And I've been getting the runaround for a long time. Yeah. And I want to say the other thing. I just got to give credit where credit is due. My friend said, I said, how am I going to quit drinking? He said, do you believe in God? And I said, I, you know, because of my childhood, I my my answer was, I believe there, quote, is a God, but, you know, yeah. I'm not living the right way, right? And he said, start asking God to help you stop drinking. And I'm yeah. like, you know, start asking God to help me stop drinking. Calm down. Hmm. But I started to do it. I started to do it. And he said, get on your knees in the morning and ask God to keep you away from a drink or a drug. And get on your knees at night and thank God for keeping you away from a drink or a drug. And I started to do that. And I'm going to tell you, the honest to God's truth, that little formula got me yeah. through the first few days. That's and I amazing. got, I found, you know, a power greater than myself that helped yeah. me restore me to sanity because I wasn't living the same way. If it's source, if it's the universe, just think bigger than yourself. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. huge. That's an amazing um, story and experiences that you've had. See, that's what you want. That's what, when you're talking about being of service, one of the best things to be of service is to say you came to the right place. Mm -hmm. Whether you say it in those words or whether you say it in your behavior, you came to the right place. I had a friend say to me something I've never heard anybody say since or before. He said, how can I make it easy for you? Oh, nice. Yeah. That kind of thing. These are like really basic things. But in today's day and age, we're told and bombarded so often that nothing works. Everything's broken. People are on the take. There's tremendous graft. There's tremendous greed. Um, there's no money for people. There's lack around you. This is what you're being fed mm -hmm. uh, all the time. So with consciously, you have to say, I know what the truth is. And I know that it's not what I'm listening to right now. Yeah. And yeah. you know, one of the things that's so simple too is is look for it. Right. When you move through your day, there are people helping each other all the time, letting somebody in, giving them parking spots, smiling at each other. Like there's little tiny acts of human compassion and kindness everywhere. And if you're looking for the opposite, you'll find it. And we talk about this all the time at the reticular activation system, the part of the brain that tags things. But if you start looking for the kindness in people and you start doing it as well, you will change the world. You will change your world. That's for sure. And it affects everybody else's of world. Of course. It's like a pebble that you drop in the water and the rings just go out. You can't even measure. A few months ago, this is the smallest thing. Somebody actually, I went through this Starbucks drive-thru and somebody had paid for my coffee. It was the stupidest thing. It was like $2. Wow. It was, it literally, I was happy for like a week. <laughs> it was like <laughs> such a lovely yeah. thing, such a small thing, but it was so beautiful. And that made me want to do it. So I've been doing that a lot lately. Also, when I go through the drive, they're just paying for the person behind me. You have no idea how that's going to ripple through somebody's life, what state they're in, how that could change things for them. The same way it did for you, Jimmy, when, when that person said you came to the right place. Yeah. And it could restore their faith in humanity. Such a small little thing. 
We're all connected. We're all connected. And we all have the ability to help, whether it's ourselves, our family, or another person. You have that ability. It's simple stuff. Just like these interventions that we talk about on the show, they're they're not complex. They're looking for the good, not complex, Mm -hmm. not a complex uh, process. Don't have to go to a class. Don't have to pay someone to learn about it. Looking for the good, just orienting yourself towards what is good, what's working, what's right with this picture. Yep. This is being an activist, doing that kind of stuff because it can lead you lead you to other things. Jimmy, I wanted to talk before we say goodbye, I wanted to talk to you about the humor for humanity and some of the events that you're doing coming up because this will tell people the kinds of things that you're involved in because it's all it's all over your calendar and it's kind of amazing. To follow up on that, your previous point, Ed, about the simplicity of things, also just some gratitude for people yes, who are huge. out there every day. You know, I mean, I do one of the best. things we got to calm down with, I think, is just the demonization, yeah. the demonization of <laughs> so many aspects of our lives. I know politically sure. it's very toxic and I fall into it, too, and it's hard not to, but it's it's just like the demonization. We got to look at some of the gratitude for, for the teachers, for the medical workers, for yes. the first responders, for yep. the average person, for, you know, the, the elected officials, you know, or the municipal workers or city workers, or just people doing all the jobs in corporate America or what a nonprofit world. People getting up every day and going to work and doing their best, you yep. know. And gratitude is a hugely powerful healing emotion. It is. It really is. In terms of your own, uh, in terms of your own life, what practices do you do every day that sort of help you? I know you're you're somebody who is always looking for the good, and it's surprising. I mean, you're you're a very funny comic. You know, you're a very successful comic. Can't you tell by this interview? Uh, how hilarious I, I am. You're hilarious because everything <laughs> everything you're saying is hilarious. How is it possible that this man um no no but I but really honestly that's something that I find very interesting that as a comic you can have more than one thing going on at the same time. Yeah. Uh in fact comics are multifaceted people but it's it's so interesting how it all goes together. I mean, you're doing stand-up in front of Bishop Desmond Tutu. Like, how's that going to go? <laughs> I was trying to figure out what's what's the Archbishop going to laugh at? You know, I said, well, he's a world traveler. This was 2007, I think, we did the event. So I did stuff on airport security <laughs> and the questions that they asked you. You know, and I always answer the questions respectfully. But as a comic, and I think most people are thinking this when they're asking you these questions, is this doing any good? You know, the questions, <laughs> did anybody give you anything to bring onto the plane? Huh? Don't look away. Yes. Look at me. <laughs> look at me. All right, don't go anywhere. I got another question. Did you pack your bags yourself? Huh? <laughs> don't look away. Look at me. Did you? Did you pack them yourself? <laughs> you know, I'm like, you're thinking to yourself, you know, no, I didn't pack them myself. A stranger. <laughs> a, a total stranger packed my bags. I could not believe the young man knew exactly what to bring. Toothbrush for Mr. Jimmy, underwear for Mr. Jimmy. Did we pack our bags ourselves? Did anybody give us anything to bring onto the plane? Did this ever catch anyone? Did anybody ever go, oh, 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 wait a second. Wait one second. Now that you mentioned it, last night, about 11, 11.15, I'm getting ready to turn in. Doorbell rings. And there stood a man I never met before. He says to me, I heard you're flying out in the morning. Why, well, yes, I am. 
will you carry this on the plane for me? Carry this on the plane for you? I don't even know you. What are you going to do for me? Oh, I can pack your bags. So Archbishop Desmond Tutu is in the audience. He's cracking up. I can hear his cackle. He's got this high voice, the South African accent. He he talks like this, and he's got a very high voice, and he's laughing his ass off in the the audience. And after the show, I... I, I asked him to sign a book for me, and he signs it. It is a, spe- it is a collection of Martin Luther King's speeches dedicated to Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the freedom struggle in South Africa. And after the show, we're going up to the room, and I get on the elevator. He gets on the elevator. I bring my bags on the elevator. He looks at me, looks at the bags, looks back at me and says, did you pack your bag yourself? <laughs> did you, That's did you pack them yourself? <laughs> Nobel Prize winning humor is what yeah. that is. <laughs> it was so funny, man. And wow. we all cracked, everybody in the elevator cracked up. And mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. But he was just down to earth. And there's an example of somebody who de- dedicated his life to something bigger than himself and was completely comfortable in his own skin. Yeah. He was not bitter. He was not angry. He was happy. He was, I would say, jolly. He was pretty jolly at this fundraiser mm. that we were at. He was just really down to earth and centered. And he's an optimist. And when I did the interview with his assistant, Stuart, he said the Archbishop would spend like hours and hours in prayer and meditation, solitude. He said he would spend all day Fridays in prayer. And he was just connecting. He was like, you know, Martin Luther King or any of the great spiritual leaders of our time. They go into themselves and they, yeah. they're asking for guidance and direction from a power greater than themselves. Yeah. And it's the same thing, similar equation, a similar formula to overcome an addiction or challenges sure. in our lives or anything mm-hmm. that's going on. That, to me, was very revealing when he told me that about him. I did not yeah. know that. He's an an amazing leader, amazing human being, and uh, he's a Nobel Prize winner. But I'll tell you what he's not. He's no Bob Hope. <laughs> so, so uh, okay. Well, that's 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 what we have here. That's the time for now. That's for this show. But you're going to come back. You're going to come back soon. I would love, I'd love that. to, Ed. I thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. A pleasure, a real pleasure. And Jimmy, where do they go to to listen to see the podcast? Where do they go? JimmyTingle.com. Interestingly oh, enough, it co- by coincidence, it's JimmyTingle.com. <laughs> so simple. The simplest answers. Take yeah. it back. Hijack it. Don't let them hijack the simple statements. JimmyTingle.com. Thank you, Jennifer, so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. Great to meet you tonight. Thank you so much, Ed, for having me. And I would love to have both of you guys on, on my show sometime. If oh, you like. I would love that. We're going to do amazing. it. Amazing. The Tingle audience needs mental health. Work. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna, mental health for the Tingle audience. Yes, immediately. Mental health comedy yes, podcast. We it. need you guys. Stand awesome. and deliver. Folks, thank you for listening to the show. If you want to subscribe, if you want to find us, you can go to wherever you get your podcast, or you can go to makelightmedia.com. Drop us a line, write us a review, find us a find, catch us a catch. That's it for this week. Life is good. Live it up. We will see you next time.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.